0: Luke chapter 14, we're in the midst of a study called Reclaiming Repentance. and The reason why we're doing this study is because oftentimes if we were to seek guidance and help in understanding repentance, we would often look to secondary sources rather than the Word of God. And so what I want to get across to you, at least in principle, is the importance of context. Every time you come to God's Word, if we just read a little bit before, we just read a little bit after, I think we would be amazed at how clearly passages become when we surround them with the surrounding passages. Now, I know that sounds probably very elementary, Uh, My job uh, here, my goal here is not to make anyone feel dumb. That's not the goal. But what I do want to say or or reinforce in your heart and mind is that the Word of God is trustworthy. It can help us understand itself. God supernaturally designed it in such a way. And I think that what's important is to know that all of us can handle Bible study. All of us can handle it. So we're looking at repentance. We actually are finding ourselves going through we're not going to look at every passage exhaustively i think that's important we're going to touch on some here and there but i think from what we do touch on i believe that if we walk through it together and if you have questions we can answer them and especially if you're picking up your paper and you're marking through the text as we go take it home and work on it a little bit more afterwards You will never be able to exhaust the Scripture, and so getting it in our hearts and minds or what we're thinking about it, meditating on it, so that we can ask for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding on the text of Scripture. I think you'll find that it will become increasingly, uh, you'll become increasingly nimble, I guess. trying to say words to get your attention this morning. I feel like everybody's asleep. Increasingly nimble in navigating through any passage where the word repentance may come. So, what we're going to look at today is the second part this working there it is what I would love some water sweetheart thank you your special treasure in heaven for you thank you and by let me say this real quick I wasn't feeling well earlier and I was standing in the back and uh, I said I'm feeling pretty dizzy I think I'm gonna just stand here and prop myself up for a minute you know kind of like a mannequin and uh bless her heart Dusty Lee went and got me some water And I thought immediately uh, to any that gives someone a cup of cold water will by no means lose her reward. So she's getting a jewel in her crown, too. It's good. Thank you. Special lady over there. All right. So we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to hit a very familiar passage today which we're going to very evidently see that Scripture interprets Scripture. But, as with anything, before we jump into Luke 15, which would be the piece of paper that you'll have resting at the end of your aisle or something like that, I encourage you to mark up the text with me if you need some pens. We can try to get you what we have, but we've depleted them pretty quickly, uh, which is a good thing. But if you would like to have those, or if you need one, raise your hand, and maybe somebody around will help you, okay, to have those. But we need to look at a little bit of 14 in order to understand what we're getting into. Now, start looking at Luke 14 verses 16 through 24 I'm going to give you a synopsis Jesus decides that he's going to tell a parable and he tells a parable because he's having to deal with the Pharisees and the scribes now if you know anything about the Pharisees and the scribes the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day their word actually means the separated ones the separatists is what they were known as at that time they were considered experts in keeping the law now if you know anything about jesus's ministry and and, in him his interaction with them you find out that a lot of the things that he wanted to bring to light about their sect show that they actually weren't keepers of the law but they were actually legalists who were heaping much more responsibility and work on others bearing them down with great burdens that's not good news okay then you have another group called the scribes In some of your translations it might actually say the lawyers. Now these aren't prosecuting attorneys, understand that. But scribes at that time or lawyers were considered people who were engrossed in the law of Moses and were considered the experts that people would go to in order to get discernment on a certain passage. Now, as Jesus loves to do, he decides to tell a story. He's going to give a parable. And he tells a parable of a wedding feast. And everything is ready to go for this feast, this great banquet that's going to be happening. And he says, Go out, and all those who have already been invited, tell them to come in. And so one of his slaves goes out and starts telling people, and you've got all these excuses. Well, I just got a horse. And I haven't even got to break that horse in yet. I got to I got to get after that. Well, I just got married and marital bliss is just on our threshold. I can't come to this banquet right now. And there's all of these excuses that come forward about why they can't attend. So we see here, look at verse 21, and the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, "Now watch this. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city, so in the same locale, just maybe some places that you might not naturally go to. And it says here, excuse me, bring in here, now mark it, the poor and crippled and blind and lame, the lesser thans of society. Invite them to come on in. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes my heart happy. That's a good thing. But then watch how it moves forward here. Look at verse 22. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. And still there's room. There's still room in the banquet hall for more people. Now, here's where you and I get involved, which is a really nice thing. Oh, sorry, forgive me. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways And along the hedges. Anybody got the old brother where art there soundtrack? Anybody got that? I'm the one, right? And you've got those little girls singing the highways and the hedges. That's where this comes from. To go out into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. So in other words, go and find the the blind and the lame and the sick and those and bring them in that are in the city and then go out in the areas beyond the city and the rural areas and look for those outside of the city and bring them as well because what I want is my banquet hall to be filled. Now let me give you a deciphering understanding of this. What is the message that Jesus offers in His earthly ministry? Please, somebody know this so i don't die in a pile up here please what is it not just that what's it start with repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and why is that because the king is present and so if israel will repent as a nation he will usher in the messianic error at that moment it's just waiting for their reception of it so now he decides depending on how ministry is going he's going to paint a picture are the jews invited yes is the banquet ready the banquet was ready two thousand years ago are they coming no and so if y'all ain't going to come Let's go out and find the people who might be considered the lesser thans of society because they have just as much right to this banquet as you do, superior religious super-legalist guys. And so bring them in, and guess what? They came. They showed up. But then the slave said to the master, anybody catch who the master is yet? Okay? There's still room. We got some open tables. Well, that's great because we're not done yet. So go out beyond the immediate vicinity, go beyond the Jew, and search out those Gentiles and invite them in as well. Now, thankfully, you're excited about that because that's us. We have an opportunity to sit at the banquet table of the master for the wedding supper. That's a good thing. I'm excited about that. Now, if you're listening to this and you've always been treated like garbage in your society, you're pretty excited about this because you're finally getting some positive news coming your way and so that is what carries us into luke 15 which all of us are probably very very familiar with now if you've got your paper out i would encourage you uh, to have that ready so that we could do some marking together here but let me give you just when i sat down with this i wrote out what the previous context was now i know. For some of you, you're like, okay, I'm looking at this paper for the first time. We're just now starting to engage it. I don't know how good I'm going to be at that. That's okay. Take it home and work on it later. Use some of your quiet time to come back to it and come back to it and come back to it. And ask for the Holy Spirit to teach you and watch what he shows you. It's profound, profound how the Holy Spirit wants to teach us the word of God. He leads us into all truth. So here's the previous context I've come up with. Just giving a synopsis of what I saw leading up to this. The parable of the wedding feast that cites the refusal of the Jews to come to the banquet that they had been invited to, and instead the poor, crippled, blind, lame, and those in the highways and the hedges decide to come to the feast. Now in between the end of that and the beginning of 15.1, Jesus then teaches some hard teachings on discipleship. You must come after me. Be willing to lose your life now in order to save your life later. He gives some hard teachings, and I encourage you to look at that on your own. But when we look at chapter 15, verse 1, notice it says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners, okay, were coming near him to listen to him. They're excited about getting taught. Jesus, we want to become your audience. Now, if somebody walked into our church today and they had a badge from the IRS, would you be good about moving over and say, sit here? no why not because we're pagans that's why no i'm kidding because there's something about that profession that makes us go are they here to cause trouble right some of you ladies are like honey did you pay your taxes right you're checking in to make sure that everything checks out why did they show up at church what if they just wanted to show up to learn What if they just showed up and said, you know what? We've heard that this place loves the the word of God and we want to talk about the word of God. I'm here to hear the word of God. Now, why did they show up? What does the context tell us? Because what Jesus is saying is, guess what? You may have been treated as a lesser than for all of your life. Did you know that there's a place at the table for you if you want it? There's a place at the master's table for you if you will only show up. Nobody else is telling them that in society. The tax collectors and sinners, they're telling them, get lost. Don't come around. You may be hurt on the side of the road. I think I'm going to cross over and pass on the other side because I wouldn't want to get dirty by messing with you. Hopefully our hearts wouldn't be like that. In fact, I would ask you this question. Maybe think about it for just a second by way of application. At the top of your paper, take your pen and write down somebody that you know is less than you are. I'll wait. Why are we not so quick to do that? Right? Good. Z-A-C-H. Okay, what do we do now? It's really difficult to call somebody to task for that is, I love you, I'm just kidding. But think about how serious that is for the moment. Deep down inside, we sometimes consider ourselves superior as to others. What I love is that Jesus saw a broad level playing field. Now, everything in the Bible does not lead to heaven. Does everybody understand that? Heaven is not the goal. That's not where eternal life is spent. It's actually the idea of the kingdom coming in. It's the deliverance of God's kingdom, the rule of the heavens over the earth. How do we know that? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because it's done in heaven, but it's not being done on earth. And if we want anything we want the rule of god so if we ever dare to pray that we're actually asking for the end of the world to take place sounds like a good prayer to me i got nothing to lose there i don't know about you but it's all joy and, and good stuff so yeah let's move in that direction but that is what the anticipation is heaven yeah we're going to dwell there temporary temporarily temporarily both of those words apply And it's going to be glorious because Jesus is going to be there. And and that's fantastic. Anywhere Jesus is, I would hope that's where we want to be. But Jesus has got an agenda to accomplish because the Father set it up that way ever since Genesis, okay? So when he's bringing this about and the idea of the greatest honoring situation that you could ever be in, like the banquet that is before the master, and you might have a place at the table, and all your life you've been treated like trash, that's good, good, good news, So that's why they're showing up and saying if jesus has got something to say i want to listen to it because he's actually given me a chance in life everybody see how that's different there's actually hope in my corner very different thing so now notice this both the pharisees and the scribes and these two guys have got something in common they are legalists you better smell this way. You better act this way. You better dress this way. You better show up at this time. Requirement, 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 requirement. And maybe you're good enough to get a pinky toe in the door. It's always expectations to live up to and a complete feeling of inadequacy, always. <coughs> How did they treat the lesser thans, do we know? Like dirt. They... they, they, they In fact, the only reason why they would be considered in a category of lesser thans is because people like legalists have put them there and have portrayed them that way in society. So notice, these legalists, they began to grumble. Why? Because that's what they do. Legalists are always grumbling. If you're someone who complains about everything, I'm going to go ahead and peg you as a legalist. That's going to be my first inclination. Jeremy, that's not very loving. That's what Jesus did. Did Jesus ever look at a Pharisee and go, you're just misunderstood? (laughs) No, he didn't. He looked at him and he said, let me tell you a story about how messed up you are. That's how Jesus handled the legalist. And he made no apologies for it. Why? Because a legalist, get this, don't miss out on this, a legalist has no part in the kingdom of heaven. Am I saying they're not saved? No, I'm saying you will have no inheritance whatsoever. Your decision about whether or not you see the kingdom of God, John chapter 3, is, Did I hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose from the grave? And have I believed in that? If that's the case, you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Done deal. That's based on faith and faith alone. But how you live your life, once you have received that gift, matters to God of whether or not you will have an inheritance in his kingdom. You might be somebody who's not at the table. The legalists weren't. Now I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult. I'm going to ask you to read through Luke 15 with me and keep your mind from thinking about heaven and hell issues here. Here's the reason why. Because this is not where Jesus goes with this. Jesus' goal in Luke 15 deals nothing with heaven and hell issues not at all so notice they begin to grumble saying what is their complaint market their complaint here is the big deal okay this man receives sinners tax collectors and sinners and eats with them now that here's a reason you might say well what's the big deal about that they just go to arby's or something no the fact is is they're sitting down and having table fellowship together Sitting down and having a meal was considered an important, intimate, engrossed conversation of sharing life with one another. It, it's, it's no mistake whatsoever that this real-life historical event happens not shortly after Jesus got done talking about a sit-down situation of table fellowship like the banquet feast, okay? So it's no surprise whatsoever. So watch where this goes. so he told them this ah now here's why you want this to be understood because the bible just gave you your genre this is how i should understand this now trivia quiz from the six of you that showed up last week what is a parable i can you answer the question what's a parable i love it it's a story Exactly. Jesus is going to tell a story that may or may not be true, that does what? It illustrates a truth. Remember, para bole, okay? The idea of para alongside bole to cast something, like you would cast out a net to try to catch some fish. He is going to cast this story alongside a truth he wants to set in front of people because the goal, if you remember the quote I gave, probably not, but you can look back at it, the goal from Roy Zuck in his hermeneutics book is Jesus is trying to get people to think. That's the hardest thing to do even today. Jesus understood it then and today. We're so often told what to think, we're not told how to think. Jesus wants to get them thinking about real life situations and where they're at. What is the complaint? Remember the complaint. Keep the complaint before you. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the grumbling problem. Now pay attention. Here's what he said. What man among you, so he personalizes his audience, okay? If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, Does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go. And here's the problem you want to know about this issue. It's because this was often the accusation against Jesus. He's helping people and doing good stuff on the Sabbath. You can't do good things for people on the Sabbath. That's a legalist. Don't you realize this is a day of rest? Is loving somebody a bad thing? Is loving them practically a bad thing? Everybody see why a legalist just kind of makes you go, everybody see that? Just grates on you. So notice, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Is there anybody here that wouldn't do that? You had a sheep, you had a nice pasture full of sheep, you know that one of them, you can hear it way off there, is in a ditch somewhere. And you're like, well, you know what? It's the Sabbath. You'll be all right. Are we good with that? no is sheep part of the livelihood of somebody who owned them yeah where are your clothes going to come from if you got more sheep that are dying that way you got to shave them and, and, and do all that stuff right i mean there's all kinds of implications about why at least economically speaking the pocketbook is going to motivate the heart okay but just think about the fact of the helpless sheep the sheep is out there and needs help what are you going to do i'm going to keep the sabbath because i'm holy Notice that Jesus is saying this is a problem. Everybody would do that. When he's found it, now notice, he goes after it. Notice that the sheep is not like, this ditch is not very comfortable. I think I need to get out and go back to the other 99 of my friends. Everybody see that doesn't happen? The shepherd goes after that sheep. He pursues. He's there to rescue. He lays it on his shoulders. Now, what's interesting about that? Sometimes you have sheep that keep going astray. If you were to look at a shepherd's account of how they would understand this in the first century in a Middle Eastern culture with a big, large pasture like that, you find that there are some sheep that just don't get it. Why is that? Because sheep are stupid. And that's just a general truth across the board. You know, that doesn't sound very nice. No, but it's honest. You know, a shepherd's got to be like, good grief. Why is Schmitty going off in the ditch again? This is terrible. I got to go get him again. And so what a shepherd would sometimes have to do when they found that sheep is take one of its legs and break it. And when that shepherd would break that sheep's leg and it couldn't walk anymore, he would then put the sheep up on his shoulders, hanging the legs over, and carry that sheep back, bind it up, and nurse it back to health completely. And what you would find that whenever a shepherd would do that, that is the sheep that ended up sticking closest to the shepherd at all times because even though for that moment there was pain involved, there was complete healing and care to bring them back into that situation. So when you see this idea of he lays it on his shoulders, there's much more going on in the history of how they would do that back then. But now notice this also. Rejoicing, right? Which is what? Party, exactly. It's a party. This is a good thing. Why can't we be celebratory about good things? And when he comes home, look what he does. He calls together his friends and his neighbors. Do you think that cost him a little bit of money to make those calls and have them come over? What do you have them do? Notice we say, rejoice. Notice how this connects. Rejoice with me. For, here's your causal conjunction. Why should we rejoice? I found my sheep, which was lost. Ha! Sheep was lost. That means they were obviously on their way to hell. And the shepherd comes in and finds them, which means they must have heard the gospel and got saved. Does this got anything to do with that? No, it doesn't. So when we see the words lost and found, don't let that mess your mind up and automatically thinking salvation and try to project that on the text all the time. That's not what this is about at all. He's saying, you may have a bunch of sheep in a place, but if one goes astray, the shepherd goes out after that sheep and does whatever is necessary in order to bring that sheep back into the fold. And when that sheep comes in, there's rejoicing and celebration to be had. It's actually a very tender story. Now notice this, because we have an application point. Jesus says, I tell you in the same way way now in the same way puts our minds back in the definition of parable to cast a truth alongside something so just as that story communicates a point i want you to get the truth that comes alongside in the same way there will be more joy in heaven notice eternally over one sinner here's our word our buzzword who repents than over 99 righteous persons, we'll talk about that in a second, who need no repentance. In the same way, there will be an eternal, joyous response over one what? Sinner. Who are the sinners in this situation? No. Go back to your context and look. Go back up to the top. Verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the what? Sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now, I know that they're listed separately. Do you think that maybe the tax collectors might fit some way in the sinner category? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're real good about judging that, aren't we? Those tax collectors, they're sinners. The IRS guy comes in. Why don't you want him sitting next to you? Because he's a sinner. Is that how we feel about that? Think about it, though. Isn't that kind of what it's getting here? I'll tell you the truth. This one sinner who repents, we got to ask the question, does the text tell me what that word means hold on to it repents then over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance now imagine i don't need any repentance i'm good that's what it's getting at it's not saying that they're so righteous that everything's lined out perfectly now if the sinners he's applying this are the ones who need the repentance and they're coming in and that causes heaven to just celebrate Who do you think these righteous are who don't need any repentance? Who are they? Pharisees and scribes. Very good. Everybody see the parallel truth there? Why? Because they are self-righteous. Jesus says in in Luke 5.32, this is one that I didn't go over just because it's small, but he's dealing with the Pharisees and scribes in that situation as well. They say, well, why is he eating with these people? why are they doing that he says the reason is is because it's not the well who need a doctor it's the sick i came to call sinners to repentance but if you don't think you need any repentance there's nothing i can do for you now that's important for us to understand is good principle there are some people who've just got their life all together and they don't need a difference maker guess what we're not called to give them one we're not tell them the gospel sure do we know the saved or not no we don't everybody needs to hear the gospel but there are some people in situations where it's going to be like casting our pearls before a swine they will trample them they will turn around they will devour us why because i don't need your help i'm good with god okay cool now remember this this parable has nothing to do with going to heaven when you die if it has anything to do it has to do with god's relentless pursuit of of people who have gone wayward you say well how do you know it doesn't have anything to do with salvation where was the lost sheep before he walked away he was with the rest of the sheep so if we were to slap salvation over the top of this are we going to say well they were part of the church and then uh they forfeited their salvation and became lost again so jesus had to go out and get them so that they could get resaved. is that what we believe about this do you realize everything that would have to be undone of what we are in christ in order to lose your salvation that's incredible So no, we know that that's not the situation and that's us projecting salvation on top of. That can't be what it is. So we can't read into every detail of every story that Jesus tells. What do we get from it? We get that when God goes out and relentlessly pursues somebody from a crooked way and they repent, which I believe means that they change their mind about their situation and the behavior or emotions follow out of that, if that's the case, that's when heaven has a celebration ceremony. And there's more excitement about somebody who will admit the fact that they were wrong about something than somebody who says, well, I just know everything, and everybody should be listening to me anyway. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a scribe. Now, here's a great thing. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us a second one. Look at this. Or what woman? Now, I love it because he's all-inclusive, right? He had to get everybody in there. There's a guy who had sheep, but there's a woman also. Here we go. If she has 10 silver coins. Now, here's what's interesting about this. In the silver coin situation, if you were to do a little research on this and find out, uh, and I've got it marked down here, uh, it is what's called a drachma. Try pulling that one on Scrabble. I'm sure they'll let you go through if you tell them it's out of the Bible. That would be good. Okay? But it's one day's wage. It's what you'd make in a day. Okay? So she's got 10 of them. Got a little savings going on here. Notice it says, she loses one coin. Does not light a lamp and sweep the house. Light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until, that's timing language, she finds it. Get out the broom, turn on all the lights, get out your flashlight, LEDs on everything. We are finding this. I can't do that whistle thing, but you know how people do the cool whistle thing? Get a search party. We're doing it. We're going after it. And look what it says after that. When she found it, notice that the coin didn't come back. Everybody see that? The coin was not like, man, this bed is really dusty and there's cobwebs everywhere. And starts rolling back into the tin. I'm going to come back one of the tin. That doesn't happen. Does everybody get the visual here? Making sure. Okay. Notice, notice what she does when she finds. Now this is just a coin. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for causal conjunction. Why? Why should they rejoice? I found the coin which I had lost. They might notice that it's the woman's fault that the coin was gone. So you can't read too much into it. Are you saying that Jesus is purposely losing people? Oh my gosh! No, stop slapping salvation on this. That's not what it's saying at all. He's giving you a story to illustrate a point. What is the overarching point? Here it is. In the same way. There's the purpose of the parable. I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels. Notice that's another way of saying the same thing as seen previously. It's eternal of God over one sinner. Verse 1, tax collectors, sinners, probably included the lame, the blind, all of that, okay? Who repents, changes their mind about a situation. Does everybody see how they're parallel? Does everybody see that both of them speak of God's relentless pursuit and going after people who have gone astray? Now, whether we're talking about eternal life or just in our day in the life, It doesn't matter. Think about this. God is passionate about pursuing people that have lost their way. Sometimes we think of him as, well, maybe he's just ill-informed. Maybe he doesn't know my situation. Well, maybe he's just too busy right now doing something else. That's never the case with God. He is always on pursuit after people. Let me state it another way. If we were to talk about salvation issues regarding this principle... How many people are on the list that God has to go to hell without any hope whatsoever? Zero. None. And since that's the case, that's not what he desires whatsoever. In fact, we see that he desires everyone to come to faith. He desires eternal life for every single person. So he's got personal stake and investment in this entire situation. But what is he trying to show the scribes and the Pharisees? What was the complaint? This man eats with sinners. Why does he talk to this riffraff? Why does he have anything to do with them? Let me tell you a story. If you lost a sheep, you'd go after it. If you lost a coin, you'd go after it. And there would be a search party like you don't know. And when you found it, there would be rejoicing like you don't know. In the same way, it doesn't matter who they are. The father pursues them and the father rejoices when they repent. That's the idea. Does everybody see that's the overarching truth? Okay, now, beyond your paper, you've got to keep the, the, the complaint in front of you. Beyond your paper, let's move into what we're all familiar with. Because this goes with it. It's a unit, okay? It's a unit. And I was going to give this to you individually, but I can't because this is the key to our question. So in your Bible, if you have Luke 15 open... If you wouldn't mind to go to, verses 11, and we're going to read forward to the end of the chapter. Stop and make some comments and wrap it all up. Here we go. And he said, who's he? Jesus. Here's parable number three. They all go together. They're all stating something important that we need to take note of and we need to put all the pieces together. A man had two sons. That's obviously important because it's brought up. The younger, okay, of them said to his father father give me the share of the estate that falls to me give me my why do i not know how to spell this how do you spell inheritance is it a who believes it's e okay making sure and hey, that's so funny you can watch from home okay okay <laughs> So, he, the father, divided his wealth between them, son number one and son number two. Now, here's the, the bad thing about this. If you did some reading and, and looking into background history of the first century, for the younger son to come up to his father and say, give me the share of the estate that falls to me is to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's a pretty serious thing that Jesus just brought to the table. It shows the ungratefulness, the ungrateful and hardened, calloused, legalistic heart of a son who has no regard for his parents. Dad, I wish you were dead. In fact, in one book, I think the comment was no son would dare say this to his dad. No son would dare bring this up to his father in that culture. It was considered the worst of the worst a death sentence, okay? Notice that the father doesn't say a word and divides up the inheritance. Now, if we're familiar with this time, you know that the older son gets a double portion. If there are any daughters involved, there's some money and something that's set aside for their dowry. But then you also have that whatever other brothers or sons that they would be in that situation, they would receive an allotment of the inheritance. Now, moving forward, not many days later, okay? And here's what you want to know. Didn't take long okay the younger son gathered everything together and went to journey in a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living now we need spent everything and this is great because this tells you what it means by squandered when he spent everything just like god to bring along these things to get our attention a severe famine occurred in the country and And he began to be impoverished. So, he went and hired himself out. Now he's got to do some menial labor to one of the citizens of that country. Gentiles. He's in a distant country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Pigs. Lots of things in the law against pigs. Okay? Praise God for us because bacon, right? But for them, not good. I'm hungry. All right. Notice, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine we're eating, but nobody's given him anything. That's just how hungry he was and willing to violate his upbringing, his culture, and his conscience to get involved in this. This is just how destitute his situation is. But, market people, When He came to His sentence, when He came to His senses, does anybody know why this is important in verse 17? What what has Jesus just done in connecting these three parables together? Anybody know? He shows us exactly what repentance is. He just defined it without saying the word. So when you would read in the first one from verses 1 to 7, you would see the word repent and Repentance. You would move on to verses 8, 9, and 10, and you would see the word repent for all those who repent. But then if you continue on in the preceding context, you actually have Jesus defining the word for you. What does Jesus believe that the word repentance mean? When he came to his senses. Notice that there's nothing emotional about that. In fact, if there's anything emotional, it's to follow. Notice that there's not any, I promise I'll never do this again. In fact, everything that he gets ready to rehearse in his speech, of which only half he was able to give to his father, you find out that that's a result of him coming to his senses, not what it is to come to his senses. You say, why are you making such a big deal? Because the Catholic definition and the modern promoted evangelical uh, definition of repentance, it looks the same. And they're telling us, you have to have this deep sorrow for sin. You have to have this incredible commitment to never do that again. That's not what the word means. And if something is being promoted about a word that is not what the word means, we've corrupted the word of God and how we read it. Now you start doing all these things so God will like you again because you're sincerely upset about a sin you committed in your life cool be upset about it but let the word of god correct your mind in your heart so that you're thinking according to the truth not according to error i don't think that god is so much interested in our emotion as he is in our devotion and there has to be a change of mind that lights the fuse for that to move forward not that we need to belabor the word repentance with all kinds of things what does jesus say it is He came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? Are both of those statements true? So imagine it. Imagine it. Guy looks bad. Okay? I'm hungry. Gosh, these pigs have it better than me. Wait a second. That's repentance. Wait a second. Let me think through this for a second. Back at my father's house, those guys that we had under us, that we had on the payroll, hourly wage, they were doing really well. Here, I'm dying. If I could just get on the payroll at my dad's place, I'd have it better off than I do now. What am I doing? Everybody see this thinking through, this logically putting it all together and going, wow, Things have got to change. That's a result of repentance. Notice he says here, I will get up, go to my father, will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now that's beautiful because the son understands something very interesting that many people don't. When we sin, at any time in our life as believers in Christ, it was a sin before God. And against God, before it was against anybody that might have been infringed upon by what we did wrong. This attitude needing to come to God first and having that first and foremost. He understood this. His thinking was correct now, and he got it. I've sinned against heaven and you, Dad. You were the second person I sinned against. My first problem is I've got to sort this out with God. We've got to deal with it. Now, notice I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. This is a good little speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice the issue here is sonship, which is a special intimate fellowship situation that goes on within a family and also stretches to the household of God, all those who are believers. Notice what the request is. Here's the request. Oh, why did that do that? My text disappeared. That looks like a G. You're right. I Nobody can read anything I'm doing. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. Because of the change of mind, he's now putting action behind the different thinking. He got up. He came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now you've probably heard this before. In the first century, that doesn't happen. They don't do that. A father would sit there with his chin high waiting for the Son to come and grovel at His feet, begging for mercy. Now what were the previous two parables about? If the sheep is lost, and if the coin is lost, then God takes up a relentless pursuit to recover what's gone astray. What do we see here? Here comes back the Son having come to His senses, having repented, and even when the Father sees Him a far way off, And remember, they wore those big, like, manly moo-moos back then, okay? So he had to hike that up a little bit. And he took off running in some sandals and embraces his son. Does everybody see how beautiful the picture is? And look what it says here. His son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And the father said, Thank you that you got good theology on this, son. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Notice all that stuff he was recited about. Please make me one of your hired servants and I've sinned greatly. And Probably didn't have any more breath left because his dad's hugging him so tight. Notice what it says. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. The best robe who does the younger son represent in this situation well us we love to personalize it Jay you're not wrong necessarily but go back to the to the tax collectors and sinners this is the sinner repenting and there's joy to be had there's celebration because everything that was jacked up in their minds has been sorted out by them thinking through their situation and reflecting upon the nature of how the Father runs things. Does everybody see that? My dad's hired people have it better than this right now. And this motivates him to come back. Quickly, bring out the best robe. That's so gross. Best robe. It's a place of honor. Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand how many fathers might look at this and go if i just give him a ring he's just going to sell it off and go smoke it up and then how we often treat it doesn't that often dictate whether or not we give money to panhandlers on the side of the road we're just going to snort it up their nose why in the world would i do that that would be a bad steward of my finances here's the question did god prick your heart that you should be giving to that person you're not responsible for what they do with it i think the question is 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 god pricking my heart in order to be the difference maker here well, they're not interested in my gospel. That's not your business. Your business is to tell the gospel. We are not the divine deciders of people's hearts that we cannot see. God leads us by the Holy Spirit. We are called to be responsive to that. What if they do go smoke it up? Well, maybe God will use your kindness in the track that you shared with them. They're out there on the door right before you leave. The track that you shared with them to give them the gospel when you couldn't happen to be there, maybe God's going to use that at a later date in order to prick their heart. But God doesn't need our reasoning through of why we shouldn't or shouldn't do something. It's the idea of he needs our obedience and our willingness to be used by the master's hand. That's what he needs. Put a ring on his hand, a place of honor that he doesn't deserve. He doesn't deserve that. Of course he doesn't. Isn't that just like God? Give him a robe. Give him a ring. Put sandals on his feet. Man, those must have been some nice sandals. If the robe is any indication and the ring is any indication, we think the sandals were like secondhand? No, they're the best of the best. Bring the fattened calf. Thank God there's no skinny calves that were offered here. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead. Lost? Sinner? No, it's not what it's saying there. Not saying that he's unregenerate. It's saying that he thought he would do what was best and he was going off on his own way and he was out of line of anything that was going on in the father's household. He was dead. He was separated. That's what the word means in every instance in Scripture. The question is separated from what? Separated from his father and he has come to life again. Come back into this fellowship experience. He was lost and been found and they began to celebrate. And all of the people, the sinners and the tax collectors who came and were sitting there at His feet because they wanted to listen to Him are going, I see me in that. Now here's the amazing thing. The older son's going to reveal something to you. He's going to reveal to us the fact that some of this squandering went on in prostitutes as well. Man, he was the worst of the worst. Those are the people that God is interested in. Because they know the need, they're just trying to fill it with a bunch of junk. We're called to show them the truth that satisfies the need, not just trying to fill it. Now his older son, if the younger son is the sinners and tax collectors, anybody want to guess who the older son is? Pharisees, very good. Pharisees and scribes. He was in the field. He was hard at it, right? And when he came, he approached the house. He heard music and dancing. And he said, huh? Okay. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, don't miss this. Your brother has come. You think there was some sort of hierarchy going on between Pharisees and scribes and the lame and the blind and the sick and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners? You think they had close quarters? You think they were spending time playing pinochle together? No. So notice, your brother has come. How were those Jews related to the Pharisees and scribes? Intimately. Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf, yea, because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was, here it is, the volition. Not willing to go in. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. How can my father do this? Doesn't he know what he's done? We have a record of it. Notice what happens. The father comes out and begins pleading. Son, come inside. This is a good thing. You don't understand. He was just as good as dead to us. We didn't know what had happened to him. He was going his own way this entire time. Come in and welcome him back. He's alive. But he answered and said to his father, look, what you know a conversation is always going to go well when it starts with that, okay? When you can feel the exclamation point, you know it's bad. Look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when my brother is that what it says no when the son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him you took a good for nothing and you gave him everything that i never got when i was faithful this whole time does this start to equal up the whole these 99 righteous people who need no repentance everybody see the attitude seething through this story And he said to him, now watch this, because here is the compassion that wraps this entire thing up. Son, even though he was bitter, nasty, and legalistic about this, he didn't consider him any less. The father still considered him a son. Son, number one, you have always been with me. You've always had access to the father. And number two, all that is mine is yours. Son, we've always had this intimate relationship going on, and there's nothing that I have ownership of that is not freely given to you to use any time that you want to. You have a place of blessed amazing privilege. What's the complaint? This man eats with sinners. How dare he? How dare he treat them well? Doesn't he know how devoted we are to the law? Doesn't he know that we have Abraham as our father? Doesn't he know that we keep the law of Moses? Are you greater than our father, Moses? Doesn't he know our track record of self proclaimed righteousness as to why we deserve the best because of how holy and pious we are? Notice what the Father says. We had to celebrate, we could not celebrate. Celebrating was the only proper response when this situation was resolved. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours, let me remind you who it is, son, was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Here's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter what type of lesser than he seems like to you. He is an equal. And just because he went astray doesn't make him a lesser. Just because you have reasons of charges against this person doesn't give you a reason to disqualify them if they've come to their senses and have acted accordingly. Accordingly to step back into the fellowship that the Father always had available for them. That attitude was even one of hatred. Father, give me all my estate now. I wish you were dead. But when he realized that everything he was dealing with in life was because of his own choices in walking away from the Father. Wait a second. People that we would have considered lesser than at home Still had it greater than this. Those hired servants. And notice when the son shows up, what does the father do? Embrace, kiss, love. He ran. He, I can't think of anything more compassionate, comforting, and scary than my earthly father running after me. Yeah, I'd be like, you know? But I guarantee you, when I saw the tears in his eyes, and the smile on his face and the open arms. I bet grace would overwhelm me to a point where I wouldn't know how to handle myself. Because that's just like the Father to be that way. Let's bow our heads. And if you'll be patient with me, I'm going to preach pray for a couple of minutes. If you're here today and you feel that you've been far gone from the Savior, the prescription, as we've seen in this chapter, is to repent. It is to come to our senses, to think clearly, to become wise again about this situation. And to recognize the love of the Father that was constant and never stopped. The privileges that are available at the Father's side. The care, the provision, the protection. The constant grace that is available. If this teaches us anything, it teaches us that it doesn't matter what you've done. If you come to terms with it, Notice that that's the beginning of the way back with the Father. And how does He respond? He graciously loves and runs and kisses and embraces you. and says, you were separated, you were dead. But now you're alive again. If you're a believer in Christ and you've walked away from the Lord, if you've fallen away for a time, Understand that the road back is repentance. Understand that God's heart is for those who have walked away. For those who would be considered sinners or tax collectors or the lame or the blind or the prostitutes or the destitute. It doesn't matter. All of those things fall by the wayside when He sees a son or a daughter returning to Him. And think about the story. He wants to put that robe on you. He wants to put that ring on your hand. He wants to put those new sandals on your feet. He wants to put together the best feast possible. And He wants everyone to celebrate a coming back again that resulted from a becoming wise again. Recognizing the truth of the situation and the actions that follow. God's heart is for people. And he desires to pursue them with his truth. So, Father, please bless our minds and our hearts to contemplate this amazing set of parables all week, to work through the text again and again, to ask for the Spirit to teach us, to teach our hearts, and to recognize if it's us who's far gone, we're not too far gone. You just ask us to come to terms with the truth and return. If we know somebody in our family, our friends, our social circles who is by the wayside because of choices they've made. They're not too far gone. They need to hear about the loving pursuit of the Father. And we need to call them to repentance. Lord, use us as instruments in Your hand today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.